morning, church. Let's pray. Lord, we uh, proclaim now in our homes, in this room, as we travel, that you are worthy. We thank you for the fact that you are the great Lion of Judah. And as the book of Revelation says, that there was consternation and sorrow because there was found no one who could break the seal and open the scroll, and yet there was one whose name is Jesus, who is worthy, who opened the scroll. And you are Lord and you are King, and we praise you. And we do believe that the Holy Spirit of the living God, you work among us. So now, come Holy Spirit, teach us, show us the greatness of Christ. Please anoint afresh us as we listen and think together to be your people, God. We want to be your people. In Jesus' name, amen. These are times of uncertainty and troubling times. I'm thankful for this virtual worship, but I am desirous of being together with people again and seeing people and rejoicing with young and old and, and know that when the government says that we can start meeting, we've already been planning on how to meet and where to meet and how to do it in a socially distancing fashion and how to meet the needs of numerous people. So we're thinking about that, the staff and the church leadership team in conjunction with the elders and a special Ad hoc committee is already planning and been thinking about what's going to happen, so know that. But for the time being, uh, we rejoice in this format of worship in these difficult days. There's a group that was featured this week on CBS News and in the U.S. News newspaper, USA Today, entitled The Wellbeing Trust. It's a research team out of Oakland, California, and the Wellbeing Trust talks about having an attitude that attacks what they call the lives that fall to despair. And based upon government statistics and research, they say in 2018, 1, 000, excuse me, 182,000 people in the United States died of suicide, alcohol abuse, or drug abuse, 182,000. And they are projecting that because of the COVID-19 reality that this year, in addition to that number, there will be anywhere from 75,000 or more, up to 154,000, they're saying, that would fall prey to the situation around us through suicide, drug abuse, and alcohol abuse. So, so this is a very difficult time. And it's a difficult time for us, and, and it's difficult because, as this report went on and said, we live in economic uncertainty. We live in sky, skyrocketing unemployment. We live with this virus, this disease that's hanging over us. We live with a time of social isolation, and they said correctly that social isolation always leads to despair and anxiety. So, because of all these things, this is a, a troubling time. Um, 
And in response to that, they said this, the COVID-19 is causing people to lose all boundaries on their behaviors, close quote, especially in the area of alcohol abuse. People are starting to drink early in the day and they're consuming alcohol. And they said, this is a horrible thing. And because people's anger is bubbling right at the surface. So as, as, I, as I read that and I thought about social isolation, I thought about this book, First Peter, and how, how Peter's addressing a church that's going into a, a, a very difficult time of persecution and a, a, a church that was in a type of social isolation that they were discounted, and yet he writes this letter filled with hope and joy and purpose and peace. And I think he's writing to them, as we look at it today, as we think about us, to give us a firm footing of where to stand in uncertain times. You see, waves of anxiety and despair and uncertainty will hit us. It's just part of living in a fallen world. But the promise of the Bible is that if we base our reality on Christ, then these waves will not overwhelm us. Well, yes, we'll feel them and we'll struggle with them, but they won't overwhelm us. Jesus closes the Sermon on the Mount by saying that everyone, he says, who hears my words and puts them into practice is like a wise man who builds his house on rock. And when the waves come and when the winds blow and when the winds, the, the, the rains fall down, it will stand strong because it's founded on the rock. He didn't say if, he says when. So, so we know these things are going to happen. So as we look at 1 Peter, it gives us a place to stand with dignity. It gives us a place to stand and to find a sense of footing, firm footing and hope in what we do. So we're going to be in this book for the couple more weeks. We've been talking about the resurrection realities out of 1 Peter. We started on Easter, the resurrection reality of a living hope. The resurrection reality of an inheritance that is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away. And even in the midst of trials and sufferings of various kinds, those trials and sufferings as they're committed to the Lord will result in praise and glory and honor when Christ comes again. So resurrection realities, hope and inheritance, praise, glory and honor, the revelation of Jesus. Now, resurrection responses, the same text. He says in chapter 1, verse 8, he says, And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And then we go to verse 18, where it says this, Knowing you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and your hope are in God. So, so resurrection response, we love him. We rejoice in him. We are glad in him. So a working definition for love as we go forward the next few minutes. Love for Christ, for the triune God, is the biblically informed, whole-souled, emotional response to the wonder of the cross. 
biblically informed, whole-souled, emotional response to the wonder of the cross. And, and, and I, re I read this passage, and I stop and I ask myself, is my love for Christ deep and growing? Is it something that is going forward? And he says in verse 18 about this, this issue of adoring Jesus. He says, you must realize, he says, that you were ransomed from the, your futile ways of living with the precious blood of Christ, not with perishable things such as silver or gold. And the word for futile means vain. It means worthless. It means powerless. Um, the same word is used, for example, in James chapter 1, verse 26, where James says, if anyone considers himself to be religious and does not guard his speech, his religion is worthless or, or, or powerless. So one thing I ask you is, ask me, is, is how, how do I know that my faith is deep and rich? And here's one answer, that, that I guard my speech. I don't slander people. I don't speak ill of people. I guard the reputation of people. I, I don't use my tongue, James says, to, to, to curse people and then to praise God. The same word is used in 1 Corinthians 15, the well-known passage where Paul says, if, if Christ is not risen from the dead, then your faith is futile or vain or powerless. In other words, if Christ isn't risen from the dead, there's no Holy Spirit given to us. If Christ is not risen from the dead, there's no forgiveness of sin that, 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 that gives us hope. If Christ is not risen from the dead, there's no interceding Christ in heaven praying for us. And, and because of that, your faith is powerless. We have a powerful faith because Christ is risen and the Holy Spirit is poured out upon us. So, so he says, the feudal way of life handed down to you by your forefathers. There's nothing wrong in loving your, your heritage and appreciating your family or appreciating your nationality or your ethnicity. There's nothing wrong with that. In fact, this week I've been keenly aware that I had the privilege of being an American. 75 years ago this week, the Nazis surrendered to the Allies on May the 8th, 1945, Victory in Europe Day. I think about the brave men who shed their blood to defeat a horrible tyranny. And I think about my dad, who's going to be 95 on Tuesday, who was in Europe with the Fifth Army on May the 8th, 1945. And I'm glad for that. But no matter how deep your patriotism is or your love for your family or your love for your ethnicity, or, or your, your mid, love for the Midwest, or the Far West, or the South, or the Northeast, whatever. Your patriotism, your love for your family, can never take care of your guilt and your shame. It can never take care of your sin issue. It can never fill you with hope and power to break sin in your life. It doesn't achieve salvation, and then does not get to heaven. So the most well-honed, well-known patriotism or familial love compared to the glory of the cross is futile. It is vain. It is worthless. It is powerless to save and change. So, so Peter is saying, behold the greatness and the glory and the majesty of Christ. And he says, you're saved, verse 19, 
not with perishable things, but, but with the imperishable, the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. Resurrection, response, therefore we love him. This week I was reading a book and I came across an old hymn I've never seen before. And I thought, man, this is a great hymn. I'll just give you one stanza. It says, cast your deadly doing down, down at Jesus' feet. Stand in him, in him alone, gloriously complete. I thought, yes, cast your deadly doing down. In other words, there's nothing you can do to make yourself right with God. Jesus has done that. Cast your deadly doing down, down at Jesus' feet. Stand in him, in him alone, gloriously complete. If you've been a believer for one week or 40 years, you are in union with Jesus and you are complete in him. You've been saved by the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect, the eternal God who fulfilled the sacrificial system once and for all on the cross. And so because of that, we love him. We rejoice in him. Our standing is secure in him. In the Old Testament, there's a king named David. And David, for years, was pursued with the intent to kill by a guy named Saul. Saul tried to kill him twice by throwing spears at him. He hunted him through the desert with an army as David had a ragtag group of men. David escaped time after time. Saul was all over the map emotionally. Some days he appeared to praise the Lord. Some days he appeared to be in league with the demons. Saul was a man who was tormented and but Saul had a wonderful son named Jonathan. And Jonathan and David became best friends. In fact, one day Jonathan, who was the heir to the throne, King Saul was his dad. One day Jonathan looked at David and he says, David, I know one day you're going to be the king and I will be one of your advisors. But you're going to be king. And the Bible says that Jonathan loved David as he loved himself. And unfortunately, there came a day of battle when Saul and Jonathan both were killed. And years later, David, after he had consolidated his rule and had become king, he called one of Saul's servants, you know, a man of integrity, and he said, is, is there anyone alive in the house of Saul that I could show favor to? And the servant said, well, there is one. His name is Mephibosheth. Said so he was only five years old when his dad and his granddad were killed. And as the family was fleeing for their lives, his nurse, who was taking care of him, fell. And because of that fall, something was shattered. And he's, he's really been a paraplegic since he was five years of age. And he went from living in the king's palace. He lives now on a street called No Hope or No Name Street. He has nothing going for him on this street. That means a street of nothingness. And David says, call him in. And Mephibosheth came in, and he fell at David's feet, and he says, what does the king want with me? And it says this, and David said, do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. 
and I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father, and you shall eat at my table always. And, 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 and Mephibosheth just says, I'm, what, what are you? Who am I? I'm, I'm a dead dog that you should show me favor and take me from the land of nothing and restore all the lands and all the houses of my grandfather and let me eat at your, at your table every day as if I were your son. But David said, because I see in you the likeness of your father, Jonathan. I believe that's a perfect picture of what it means to be in Jesus. When we are in Christ, we are embraced in love, not because of our performance, thanks be to God, not because of our academic acumen or our, our, our cultural awareness, but only because of who Jesus is in us. Therefore, cast your deadly doing down. Now, let me ask you this. Do you glory in the cross in such a way that the love of Jesus captivates you afresh? Do you glory in the cross in such a way that you see yourself changing? I, I want that. I want that for you. Love is a biblically informed, whole-souled, emotional response of the child of God to the wonder of the cross. In Luke chapter 14, Jesus says, If anyone comes to him and doesn't hate his father and mother, his wife and his children, his brothers and his sisters, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. And then he goes on at the end of the passage, that passage, he says, Salt is good. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? And what Christ is saying is, do not lose your saltiness. Do not lose your focus. Behold the supremacy of who the Lord is in your life. Make that paramount, and you will be the person God has called you to be. You see, I'm, until I taste the goodness and the greatness of Christ and the forgiveness of sins and see the wonder of the cross, I, I will never go hard for him. Matthew chapter 13 says this. It says, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven is like, is like a treasure hidden in the field which, which a man found and covered up. And then in his joy, he goes and he sells all that he has and he buys the field. And we read that and, and, and we think, well, that, that's a good, a good little passage to teach at an MBA program on entrepreneurial success. You, you find, you, you find a, 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 a giant pearl in the field, and so you sell all you have, and you, you buy that field, and then you, you turn around and you, you sell that pearl, and you make a 250% profit. That's not what it says. It says that this man found this pearl, and he sold all that he has so he could divide this little tract of land so that he could rejoice and be glad in this incredible treasure that he has. I will never go hard for Christ until I see that he is my treasure, until I glory in the wonder of the cross, until I love the gospel of grace continually. And I think of, of, of Paul in Philippians 3 and a this a monumental passage where, where Paul says that as a trained Pharisee, I was on top of my game and I was at the top of the heap and there was nothing about me that wasn't in line with my Pharisaical code-keeping, rules-oriented living. I mean, everything about me was, was, was together. And then he says in chapter 3, verse 9, he says, he says, I count everything for loss compared to the passing joy of knowing Jesus my Lord and, and, and might be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own, which comes from the law, what I do, but that which comes through faith in Christ, a righteousness that depends on faith. He says, you know, everything I did, 
all my rules keeping, all my social status in the pharisaical world, and all of my blameless behavior was nothing more than a pile of garbage compared to the joy of knowing Jesus. That's an amazing statement. I've got to see the treasure that is Christ. I've got to treasure Jesus. I've got to delight in Jesus. I've got to be captivated by the wonder of the cross of Jesus. Hebrews 11 says that God rewards those who seek him. I'll, I'll never go hard for the living God. I'll never stretch myself and doubt, out and do what, I, what God calls unless I see that, that there's a great reward and joy and delight in knowing Jesus. Am I someone who has a biblically informed mind that is continuously captivated by the cross in such a way that my emotions are drawn to the reality of Jesus? Just a few points. Number one, love grows as I glory in the cross. This passage says, my love will grow as I glory in the cross. Chapter one, he says that we have been saved for obedience to Jesus and for sprinkling with his blood. We love him even though we haven't seen him. My love will grow as I glory in the cross. I've been reading some material by a guy named Benjamin Breckenridge Warfield. What a great name. B.B. Warfield taught at Princeton for four decades from the late 1880s to the early 1900s. And this is what he writes, just three sentences. He says, contrition should continue or repentance should continue the life of the believer, a life of Continuous dissatisfaction with self, but a corresponding joy in the continuous looking afresh to Christ as the ground of all hope. So we're simultaneously saint and sinner, and we repent of our sin, and we know our sin, but we always run to Jesus. He says, we dare never lose the awareness of our sins. For the moment we think that we have no sin, we shall desert Jesus. This is the point. A continued sense of sin is necessary to a continued heart of reliance upon Christ. On earth, it is the great exercise of faith to see sin and Christ at the same time, to be penetrated with a lively sense of our desert and our absolute freedom from condemnation. But the more we know of both, the nearer we shall approach the state of worship in heaven. He says you've got to you got to see your sin and the cross. And that's why I say this is just me, that for every one look at my sin, which is there, make 25 trips to the cross. One, 25. So it, because as my love will grow, as I glory in the cross. And I ask you, is your love growing? I look at this text. I say, is your love growing? For Jesus, because you see what the cross has saved you from. Don't ever forget what the Lord in his tender mercy by the outstretched work of the Holy Spirit through the instrumentality of the shed blood of the cross has saved you from. It's amazing. Number two, my love for people will grow as I glory in the cross. Verse 22 says this, since you have in obedience to the truth purified your souls, 
for a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart. For you have been born again, not of perishable, but of imperishable seed. That is, through the living and abiding word of God. And, and so as Peter exhorts the church to love, he says, since then you have, in obedience to the truth, what's the truth? The gospel. He's, talking, he's been talking about the gospel of grace, the work of the cross. Since you have, in obedience to the truth, up here, thesis statement, you've purified your hearts for, for sincere love of the brethren, fervently love from the heart. Powerful word. Fervently. Next argument, next statement. Because you've been born again, not of seed that's perishable, but imperishable. So the glory of the gospel, the imperishable seed of the gospel, the living and abiding word of God. So I look at this and I say, self, if I have tasted the cross and the glory of the cross and the Holy Spirit lives in me, I'm called to fervently love, to be kind and caring to, to all of those around me with an intentional, heartfelt rejoicing in who Jesus is in me and what he's done for me. And so I ask you, I ask myself, are you loving your brothers and sisters fervently? Behold the glory of the cross. And then... And he says, thirdly, he says that as I behold the glory of the cross, I grow in my obedience. Chapter 2, verse 1. He says, since you have, because he's put away all, all, all malice, guile, hypocrisy, and envy and slander, and like newborn babies, long for the pure milk of the word, that you may grow up in your salvation if you've tasted the goodness of the Lord. And then he says that Christ is the living stone rejected by men. So, so if, 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 if I'm to grow in my obedience, I've got to be someone who glories in the greatness of Jesus. I've got to taste and see the goodness of Christ. So when, I, when it comes to put aside malice and guile and hypocrisy and envy and slander, and those are tough things to put away, let's be honest. As I worship and glory and the greatness of Christ, I put them away. If I just, with self-effort and resolution and accountability to somebody do that, Paul says in Colossians 1, there's has limited power to control our, 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 our behavior. But if I am viewing the cross, there's a glory there. So I ask, you ask me, is there glad-hearted obedience that breaks the power of sin in our lives? So obedience to Jesus flows from worship. Love for Christ is the biblically informed, Holy Spirit-saturated teaching about the character 
and the goodness of Christ and the glory of the cross in such a fashion that my response is a whole-souled, emotional, clean to him as I glory in the greatness of what he's done for me. That gives you a place to stand. That gives you a place to worship. That gives you a place to rejoice. Let's pray. Lord, we are your people and the sheep of your pasture, and this is your word, and this is the Lord's day, and this is a strange time in the history of your church, of your people. And we, we pray, Lord, you'd make us keenly sensitive to those around us. We, we, we pray, Lord, that as we behold the glory of Christ, that, that, that there would be a turning unto you and a turning unto you that deepens our worship that, that gives us a love for people. As we were singing earlier, from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation out of Revelation. So, Lord, do that. And as we turn to you, give us, just break the power of canceled sin in our lives and show us the greatness of Christ. Lord, we pray for our country this time. We pray for our leaders as they struggle with when to lift certain sanctions. And we pray that we would be prayerful people. We pray for our, our brothers and sisters uh, who are uh, discouraged and beat up at different parts of the world. We pray for our nation, Lord. And as we've walked this week through this uh, horrible video that's gone viral about this young man who was just shot, shot down in the street in Georgia, how our hearts go out to people who are hurting. And I pray that as the people of God, we would always stand for those who are dispossessed or cannot defend themselves. Give us hearts that are courageous and bold. As we worship you, get us outside of ourselves, I pray. Have mercy. Have mercy upon us. We thank you for this day in Jesus' name. Amen.